Thanks for making us part of your week. I know we're in a very busy part of the year. People have survived the first bout of exams and finals, and uh, I'm glad you're all still alive. Good. You can do it. You can do it. All right. Um, this semester we are, and this whole year actually, we are spending time in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is our host on a journey through the life of Jesus. If you're a mature Christian, this is a wonderful way for you to grow in your faith. And if you're not a mature Christian or a Christian at all, you're confused or you're just skeptical, you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to get on the ground level of who Jesus is and what he cares about as uh, we work our way, I want to say slowly, but not too slowly, 24 chapters and about 26 sermons over the course of the year. Um, Hey, real quick, I don't usually do this, uh, which is talk about myself, but I do want to say a thing or two about myself. This will probably be the last time this year. Um, As campus pastor, one of the things I like to do is, believe it or not, hang out with you. And although it might seem odd for you to, like, I don't know, be seen in public drinking coffee with a 41-year-old man, um, and I can usually tell it's really odd when we run into your friends uh, in public places. Uh, that's something that we as staff love to do, uh, whether it's Catherine, Callie, or myself. So uh, if you want to grab lunch or coffee or take a walk, shoot some baskets, hit some golf balls, I don't care. If you want to hang out, let me know. Love to do it. Love a chance to get to know you and serve you in that way. If you were here last week, then you might remember that we were at the stage in the story where Jesus is publicly making known his agenda. Uh, I said in some ways it's like his uh, first hundred days in office. He, he made clear to the people what he had come to do, and then he started to do it. And uh, if you weren't here last week, then you just heard what we talked about last week. So there you go. Well, this week, uh, if that was the big macro picture last week, this week we get in on the ground level. At the personal level, like super personal, like two people's lives, like super personal, like stuck in a boat with Jesus, kind of personal. And that's where we are. And as we jump into tonight's text, I, I wanted to ask you a question, just sort of to pique your interest and to maybe put it in the back of your head. Um, maybe it's more like a riddle than a question. What can be better than best? Now, I assure you. I know English. I did better at that part of my SAT and ACT than the other stuff. Uh, I know comparatives and superlatives and the way they work. And and yet I'm convinced that tonight we'll see that there is a, a way to be better than best. Hang with me on that one. All right, so our text is Luke chapter 5. We'll be reading the first uh, 16 verses. Here we go. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so that they both began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But even now more reports about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and pray tonight. You'd be kind uh, to meet with us, uh, to show us your greatness and your kindness. Uh, Lord, we're a little bit weary, a bit worn down. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be kind to invade our little boats here, if you would, and uh, show us great things about yourself. Uh, be with me in my weakness. Uh, be gracious, Holy Spirit, to use these weak words to uh, press the truth of the gospel into our hearts. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I want to take you back to a scary place. That's my sophomore year in college. Imagine, if you will, me, a sophomore in college. Um, I'll help you imagine. So um, I'm sitting in my room uh, one particular evening doing work for once, which was a rare occurrence. And uh, my roommate was also in the room uh, quietly sitting on his bed doing work, which was not at all a rare occurrence. That was his natural habitat. And I went to JMU, James Madison, and I believe the slogan should be, not a great school, but a great place to go to school. So I was at JMU, not a great school, but a great place to go to school. And uh, man, this is a beautiful campus in a quiet little town in the heart of Shenandoah Valley. And uh, I live in a super quiet, upper-class dorm. Uh, I live on the basement floor of that dorm, okay? It's a 10-second walk from my door to the parking lot and a one-minute walk from my room to all my classrooms. In other words, you should be jealous. Anyway, uh, I live in this like Mayberry version of college. And... Um, and that's what makes this particular incident so jarring. I'm sitting there doing work for once, and uh, out of nowhere, my roommate screams like a 12-year-old girl. Like, I would do it right now, but you'd all hate me. And so I'm not going to do it. But he literally screams. And uh, after I like locate my skin and crawl back into it, because I've jumped out of it, I, uh, I look at him, and he is cowering in fear on his bed with his hand over his mouth staring at our door, the door to our room. So I look at our door and there in the doorway is this mountain of a man. Huge man. Okay, Giant beard, long hair, disheveled hat, wearing blue jean overalls, bespectacled covered with sawdust. Okay? in my college dorm room doorway. And I look, and he looks at me, and he says, Hey, boy. <laughs> like, oh. Hi, Dad. This is my father. Yeah. 
Now, the reason the story is funny is, is my father was terribly out of place. I, even if I knew he was coming, he was terribly out of place. My, my father's from two hours away in a small rural town in Virginia where he can walk into a local bank like that and everyone knows who he is and he doesn't stick out. Sticks out terribly on a college campus, especially unannounced. And uh, I tell you that story to tell you that it's just a certain truth that we want to keep people in their places. So it'd be odd or strange for you right now if your mom walked in and sat beside you unexpectedly. It just would. Like, oh, Ms. Rankin, good to see you. Why don't you sit right there? It would perhaps be even more strange if your mom just showed up completely unannounced wherever it is you may be tomorrow night at 10 o'clock p.m. Imagine where you're planning to be 10 o'clock tomorrow night. Mom shows up right there. You, you don't want her there, right? We want to keep certain people in their place. So I have, I have children. I love them. I have four kids. And I don't bring them here for lots of reasons. But one is like a 16-month-old would just like completely ruin the night. It'd be really fun, but we wouldn't be able to get anything done. And um, the, the same is true of the way we think about God and Jesus. We want to keep Jesus in this place. We want to put him in this corner. We don't want him to be a disruption into our lives and into our agenda. And so for some of us, we have a place for Jesus. And it's like Sunday morning and maybe Thursday night. And uh, it informs the way we think about certain things. But there are certain areas where he's not allowed. Whether it's the way we think about our work, our vocation, our sexual practices, whether it's real or imaginary, or our relationships. And for some people, they have a place for Jesus too. They put him in the corner like the saxophone they played in band in 11th and 12th grade. And they said, you stay there. I will come back and get you when I graduate. I'm just too busy. I got too much to do in college. You understand. I'll pick this back up. Like, this is really important to me. But I'm just going to sort of like put you in the closet for four years and come back and pick you up later. It's one of the great myths of college, actually, that you can just sort of suspend everything you believe and come back and pick it up later. So they have a place for Jesus. And then there are some who have a place for Jesus. I'm talking about our college campus in general, and maybe some of you that are here. And that is, I would like to keep him firmly in that fictitious book where he belongs. Like, I, I'm not, he can stay there. It's got nothing to do with me. In some ways, I think all of us want to put Jesus in his place because we don't want him to disrupt our lives. And their text makes it really clear he's not having it. You're not putting Jesus in the corner. He's come to disrupt us, and he does so with his grace. So a pretty simple outline. And by the way, I bring an outline almost every week, and it's available for you in the back corners. Except I don't bring it every week, and so you'll forget. I'm terrible. I'm sorry. But they will be here most weeks if you're a note taker. So uh, basically, tonight we're going to see... How his Jesus coming and his grace disrupts us, and, uh, and and it leads to discovery and recovery. So, real quickly though, let's just look at a very surface level at how Jesus is disruptive. Okay, he's a troublemaker in some ways. He's been at ministry now for like a couple weeks, maybe a few months, and he's in Capernaum, this like uh, in Gennesaret, the, the Sea of Galilee. And just on the surface, look look how weird or strange things are because of who he is and what he does. On what is probably like a Sunday morning, there are hundreds and thousands of people gathering by the lake to hear him speak. That's not normal. It's not normal now. It wasn't normal then. It's disruptive. There are people trying to sleep. 
Some mom, like my wife, is angry, like, would you be quiet out there? The kids are sleeping. Hundreds of thousands of people meeting, trying to listen to Jesus. He's uh, disruptive. He's uh, disruptive to at least a couple of fishermen. These guys are tired. They've been fishing all night. He commandeers their boat and uses it for a pulpit, a floating pulpit in a lake. It's a little disruptive. Um, there's a little matter in verse 4 of Jesus, who's a preacher, former carpenter, telling a bunch of fishermen when... Where and how to fish. That's a little disruptive. Uh, there's the little matter in verse 12 of a leper who has absolutely no business being in the city at all. He comes to the city to find Jesus. He should not be in the city. He's not allowed. He comes to find Jesus. That's disruptive. And uh, by the end of these episodes, these two stories in verse 15, his fame has grown to such an extent that even more people, bigger crowds, are coming. And uh, they're coming to hear him preach, and the text says, and to be healed. So this isn't just like curious people, like curious intellectual people asking questions. What do you think about this? No, no, it's some people like that, but it's also like tons of broken, hurting people in their pain and misery gathered together. That's disruptive. I mean, imagine that on the streets, okay? Thousands of people coming to hear someone, many of them lame, dragging sick Aunt Bertha out, and people on crutches, and people wheeled out on beds. It's disruptive. But we're going to focus really on two people, two characters tonight, and how Jesus, they're very different people, uh, how Jesus personally gets in and disrupts their lives, okay? Let's meet them real quickly. Uh, the first is Simon. Here's what we know about Simon so far. He's married because he has a mother-in-law. Jesus has healed her last chapter. And he has a brother, Andrew. And he works with two other brothers, James uh, and John. We meet them in the text here. They have a little partnership. They fish together. It seems like Simon's probably the head honcho, the main dude. And uh, that means Jesus is probably an acquaintance. Simon knows something about Jesus. We don't know how much. Here's what we also know. They had a long night of fishing. Night is the best time to fish. They fished all night. And last night, they caught nothing. Like, nothing at all. Zero. So that's what we know about him. And in verse 3, Jesus commandeers his boat. And he turns it into a floating pulpit. Which is a great idea. I'd like, we should try this sometime. We should all be on a panther hollow. <laughs> and have a large group. And I'll, I'm just kidding. We should not do that. I'll stand, I'll stand on a paddleboard in the fountain outside of Frick. Um, anyway, um, so imagine the scene. Uh, Simon's in the boat. Jesus is in front of him, and thousands of people are on the on the shore watching Jesus speak. And I, I can imagine Simon's like, it's like all these people are looking at me. They're not, of course, but he's in the boat, probably having his patience stretched. He didn't really, he wasn't really asked to do this, and uh, perhaps he's interested in what Jesus is saying. We don't really know. But in, in verse 4, Jesus finishes talking. Like the, the text doesn't spend any time telling us what Jesus said to the people. That's not really the point. The point is this, that when Jesus was, Jesus was finished saying whatever he said, he, he got up, turned around, turned his back on the crowd, and said to Simon, Hey, let's go fishing. Let's, come on, let's go fishing. And that Simon, verse 5 Somewhere between exhausted and exasperated, still manages to be respectful. Master, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But if you say so, we can go. Uh, what we have here, I think, is pretty clear. 
it's an, it's an uninvited disruption. Peter didn't seem to ask for this. Jesus is invading his space, his life, his time, his agenda. Um, yeah, this was not invited. Completely unlike the leper. The leper that we meet uh, in, in verses like 12 and following, uh, well, what do we know about him? Uh, almost nothing. We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know if he has a family. We don't know anything. All we know about the leper is he's a leper. And we do know a lot of things about lepers. That when in the, old, the New Testament period, if you had this disease, you were ceremonially unclean. That made you a social and religious outcast. You were not allowed in the temple. You were not allowed in town. You were considered contagious. You had to leave your family, your wife, your children, your friends, everyone. And you literally went and lived in a leper colony with other people like you. And you all lived, suffered, and died together. That's the epitome of being an outcast, okay? So that's what we know about this guy. And, and basically, he is someone who's been disrupted. This disease has ruined his life. And now, because this disease so identifies, he's so identified with his disease, he's a walking disruption. When this guy walks into town, he actually has to yell that a leper's coming. He is a walking distraction. He's a walking... He ruins everyone's life and day. That's what he's like. That's what it's like to be him. And he comes out of his great need pleading for help. Everywhere he goes, he disrupts others. And today he comes seeking for Jesus to change his life. To change his status quo. He is inviting Jesus to disrupt his life. So, how does Jesus disrupt lives? Sometimes it's invited, sometimes it's not. We have both cases tonight. In both cases, both these men, both Simon and the leper, there's both a process of discovery and recovery. And this is what I really want you to hear. Pretty interesting stuff here. So, uh, verse 12, it's really amazing what this leper knows, what he believes. He comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. doesn't say much, but what he says is pretty interesting. Lord... He knows that Jesus is someone super significant and powerful. If you will, you can make me clean. You have the ability, the power, the might, the greatness to fix me. That's a fantastic claim that, he, that you would not just hang on anyone. He sincerely believes that Jesus has the power and the ability to heal him. And... Uh, Although he knows all that, which is a lot, he still, has, he still has something to learn. Because in verse 13, when Jesus says, I will be clean. When Jesus actually exercises the power, the will, if you will, to, to heal the leper. He, he does so in a unique language. I don't mean his verbal language. That would have been sufficient. He could have just said, I will be clean. But he, he uses a particular kind of language that means a lot to a leper. Someone who hasn't been touched in who knows how many years. Who hasn't been touched by his wife or children or friends since this disease ruined his life. Jesus uses the language of touch. He didn't have to. No one made him. Completely superfluous. Jesus 
touches this man, which he wasn't supposed to do, because you're supposed to get the disease that way. But Jesus is so great that the disease doesn't work on him. His greatness and power and glory and holiness works in the other direction and heals the man. But it's not just his greatness on display. It's his goodness that he would touch someone like this. His touch says, I love you. His touch says, I'm not afraid of you. His touch shows his compassion and care. The leper knew that Jesus was great. The leper knew that Jesus could heal him. The leper could not have imagined that Jesus was this good. Good enough to touch him. Good enough to care to that extent. Now let's go back to the boat. Let's talk about Simon. So in the boat, we also find Jesus trying to speak the language of the person he's disrupting. For the leper, it's touch. For Simon, let's, let's try and talk fishing. And, and, and Simon's not having it. Uh, I can imagine Simon, as he rose out into the, into the, into the lake, it was a big lake, about 12 miles by 8 miles, uh, biting his lip, wishing he were done for the day, thinking like, hey preacher man, stick to your pulpit. Uh, we know fish. Uh, but again, Peter seems to be respectful. He calls him master. He, he says, if you want us to, I'll do what you say. If you tell us to throw the nets out, I'll tell the men to do it. And so he does. So uh, who here likes to fish besides you? Uh, okay. Best day ever. Someone shout it out. Best day ever. Go. Come on. You caught a fish. Your best day ever. Okay. Anybody else? Best catch ever. Go. Someone. Eight pound? Three. We have three. Do we have four? Do we have six? Anyone been salmon fishing and come home with like buckets and... No? Okay. Well, anyway. Um, I haven't had those days either. My my parent, my in laws lived in Alaska, and you can get a license where you just like stand in the in the river and like scoop up salmon, like seriously, scoop them up in a net and throw them right in a cooler and fly them, and that was pretty great. And I won't tell you what happens then, but anyway, um, whatever your best day was, does not compare. Whatever your best day was fishing does not... I've had some great days fishing. One of the best days of my life, I fished a beautiful stream. It was like something out of the river runs through it. This idyllic idyllic scene in the mountains of the Yellowstone National Park. Fishing for miles and hours all by myself. It was beautiful. And I actually caught things. Does not compare. These guys have the best day ever. Jesus says throw out the nets. They throw out the nets. Immediately, the text says, verses 6 and 7. They have this immense catch. that They're using the nighttime nets, which are the heavy-duty big catch nets. And and there's so many fish, the nets are breaking. They can't pull them in because the ropes are breaking. And so Simon or Andrew stands up in the boat and waves in help, and James and John jump in the boat, and they row out, and they start loading it in. And they can barely load it. And they start, you can just imagine, like, I don't know, what's the name of that Alaskan boat show, The Great Catch or whatever? Deadliest. Deadliest, yeah, yeah. You just see, like, you just see, like, them dumping stuff, and there's fish and stuff falling all over the deck of the boat. These were 20 to 30 foot long boats. They're dumping the fish into the boat. There's so many fish in the boat that these 20 to 30 foot long boats are sinking. They're sinking. And... 
in what has to be an amazing, miraculous day of fishing, the craziest thing as Andrew, James, and John feverishly work to catch all the fish is that Simon has stopped working. Verse 8. Best catch of his life, and you find Simon where? You find him on his knees. He's on his knees, at Jesus' knees, in the boat, surrounded by fish. Why? Why would you, why would you stop fishing in the greatest catch ever? Because it has become painfully clear to Simon that he's in the presence of someone unlike him. He's, he's making a remarkable but painful discovery. And he sums it up like this. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. What has he exactly discovered? What leads to this kind of reaction? It seems a little strange, maybe to some of you. You have this great catch, and all of a sudden you're asking Jesus to leave? Like, this is like the best fisher guy ever. He doesn't know what he's doing, but you just bring him along, you catch great amounts of fish. And something has happened to Simon. Jesus, who hasn't lifted a finger, really, it seems, I don't think we have any reason to think he did, simply said, like, throw your net in, and a miraculous thing happens. And so Jesus' greatness, that somehow he has the power to make this happen, and his goodness, that he would give Simon and his brothers and his men such a great gift, it undoes him. He is uncovered. Um, somehow, the combination of Jesus' greatness and goodness, and I, I even imagine his like joy in the boat as he fishes, uncovers Simon. And it becomes painfully aware to Simon that Jesus is altogether greater than him and better than him. So it's, it's almost like, you know, somehow, maybe in Simon's mind, Jesus has said, So Simon, you think you're good at fishing? Think you're better than me? Watch this. And, and not just in the area of fishing, but in every other way, it's become really clear to Simon that Jesus is absolutely great and good and that he's not. So, a uh, really interesting thing here. Uh, Simon seems to have come to this equation or conclusion that Jesus is great. That's why he calls him Lord. He is unlike anyone else. And that Jesus is really good. And that he's not. I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm not good. I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. Therefore, please leave me. Depart from me. Uh, what, what Simon is saying is, Lord, you're too good for me. I'm not worthy of being near you. And, and to help you make sense of this, I'll give you an illustration. Imagine your life, this isn't, we don't want to go too far with this. Uh, imagine your life as a hotel room, okay? I don't want to go too far with this. Stop it. Um, you walk in, you look around, and you think, well, this is not too bad. Pretty comfortable. And like as you're putting your suitcase down, like CSI detectives walk in and they flip off the lights and they turn on those blue flashlights and start shining it around the room. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden you see like every stain, every smudge, every smear, every print. You think, this place is disgusting. Well... What's happening here and what happens to us is when we encounter Jesus and his greatness and goodness, he is the blue light to our real life. When we see him as he is, it shows us what we're like. 
It uncovers us. It undoes us. And if you don't believe that, I can't really make you figure it out. I would just simply say experientially. I started like reading the Bible when I was in high school and read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus describes what it's like to be a person that follows him. And I read this thinking I was a pretty good person. And every night when I finished, I concluded, I am not a very good person at all. That something about Jesus surpassing goodness and greatness makes me really small and shows me how I am unworthy. So, uh, real quick, what ailed the leper was clear to everyone. It was right there on the surface. You could tell what was wrong with him. And he came to Jesus and said, please heal me. What ails Peter was not clear to anyone. It was deep in his heart. No one knew what it was. What ails you? If you're in a boat with Jesus, what's he trying to get you to see? Better yet, perhaps differently, what are you trying to keep Jesus away from? If you're putting him in a corner, what are you trying to keep him away from? Because you want it, you want to keep it to yourself, you're ashamed of it. If he were to climb into your boat, what would that be? I know we want to keep him in the corner because he's disruptive and we're afraid he's going to change our lives or ruin our lives or make us give up things we don't want to give up or we're going to be embarrassed by it. But quickly, we need to see that his disruption, that the way he barges into our lives and uproots things, it actually is really good for us because it leads to recovery. Not just discovery about our need and how bad we are, but also recovery. Stay in the boat real quick. So Simon Peter's there, kneeling in the boat. He wants Jesus to leave. He actually begs, like, Jesus, would you please leave? And he's not angry at Jesus. He's just concluded that he's no longer worth Jesus' time. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, you're right, Simon. You're a sucky fisherman. Uh, You're a worse human being. Uh, It's not what he says. He could have said that. It would have been true. It would have been absolutely true. He says in verse 10, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Now, I can imagine Simon kneeling in the boat saying, like, well, what does that mean? Um, but what do you mean to something along these lines? Hey, Simon, last night, you're, you're a fisherman. You couldn't catch a single blasted fish. You're not really good at that. And, and today you've really seen, maybe for the first time, what you're really like. And it makes you want to run away from me. You know what I want, Simon? I want you to be with me. I want you to come with me. I want you to stay with me. I want you. That is grace. Do you want to know, do you want to know what disruptive grace looks like? It's verse 11. That when these men brought their boats to land, which was filled with the best catch they'd ever had in their whole lives, what did they do? They left it on the shore. They left the best day of work they'd ever had in their whole life. They left the blasted fish on the shore forever and went away with Jesus. Isn't that crazy? I mean, think about it. Think about the best thing you've ever done in your life. The thing you would be most proud or excited to talk about. The best. What's better than the best? Jesus. Who gives you the best. This is disruptive grace. Not that Jesus would get into your life and mess things up and show you who you are. That's part of it. Disruptive grace is this. When you realize that he knows exactly who I am and what I'm like. And he wants me anyway. 
And now I want him more than I want anything else. That having him is better than having the best of anything else. That's what these men have discovered. Each one of them. Our friend, the disruptive leper, who uh, is immediately healed by Jesus. What does he discover? How has he recovered? Jesus basically, after he heals him, gives him two, two commands. Hey, buddy, I need you to keep this quiet. Don't go tell everyone. This is verse 13 and 14. Keep it to yourself. And then secondly, hey, do all the ceremonial things you're supposed to do. This is the way in which basically it became clear to the, the religious authorities and everyone in society that this guy had been fully restored. This is the way to be restored to society. And it looks like what this guy did was the latter and not the former. I, I, want, to, I want you to see real quick that Jesus cared about restoring this guy completely to his family, to his society, to everyone else. And this guy did it, and he took it, and he ran with it. And he was more than just restored. Uh, he, he not only restored the commun- to, the, to society, he, he became a public blabbermouth for Jesus, such that Jesus could no longer enter towns because this guy kept talking about him everywhere. How do you know that you get Jesus? That you really understand what he's about? And what he wants. Well, two things from our text tonight, and there are others. One, that you would be willing to leave behind your best day ever for a lifetime with him. Because he's better than your best. That being with him is better than anything else that you can accomplish or imagine. Because he's actually maybe the only one that really knows you as you really are and still loves you. And secondly, because of all of that, because he loves you and knows you, that you actually want to tell people about him. That you, like the leper, can't help but tell people about him. And I'm not talking about extreme nuttiness here, like standing on the street corner telling people, handing out pamphlets. I'm just talking about in your normal, everyday life, you care about Jesus' love for you enough where you want to talk about him, that you care about it. And if that's not your experience, that's not what's going on in your life, then what? Well, then I think you have to go back to the first question. What is Jesus trying to show you about yourself? What are you hiding in the boat? What does Jesus really think of you? Do you really know yourself? Do you really know how prideful you are, how selfish you are? Do you really know what Jesus thinks about what you do? Do you know, like Peter, I'm a sinner. I'm I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Do you know, like the leper, like, I need you to help me, Lord Jesus. And do you know, like the leper and like Simon, you can heal me. You love me. You're great and you're good. Your grace has the power to change my life. Enough to make me want you more than anything else. All right. I've spoken long enough. We should be.